Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Well, good morning. We are continuing a nice, slow, bri- uh, slow brisk walk through slow brisk. That doesn't make any sense. Slow brisk. Those are two different words. We are continuing a nice slow walk through the book of Matthew. Uh, if you are just, uh, if this is like your first week or you've been with us for a few weeks, we're in part five. Uh, so if you're already there in your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew 15. I'd like to start off, though, uh, for those of you, anybody a historian in here, anybody love reading history books for fun? Okay, no, that's good. All right. Uh, I'm going to give you the quickest, briefest history on something that has been uh, in the church for the last 2,000 years. And to be honest, everybody seemed to disagree with it. And the reason why I'm doing that is because, as you kind of maybe are gleaning from what Adam was reading, what we're talking about today is rigidity and traditions and how it ultimately just uh, is, is, is pointless if the internal heart is not behind it. So we can do all these things, but if our heart's not behind it, we can often become hypocrites. And so the church is infamous for that. Um, if you have been a part of the church or you just like, maybe you're not really, you didn't grow up in the church, but you've had like outside, like a periphery vision of it, you can probably see that a lot of people were like, oh, the church is so hypocritical and they change their minds on things and all that kind of stuff. Uh, well, there's a lot of different things that have changed over the last uh, few thousand years, whether it's stances on tobacco and drugs, gambling, marriage, swearing, or even dancing, if you're wondering. Uh, I was a part of uh, the Wesleyan um, denomination when I was getting my master's, and they just even recently, d- dancing was like this provocative thing. So I do dance at weddings. Uh, so if you'd like to invite me to your wedding, I will dance if you're curious. But, uh, but it's all these crazy things. And so today, specifically, one of the issues that I want to talk about that's changed over the last few thousand years is the issue and stance on alcohol. So interestingly enough, and, and this is not necessarily like I could pick any of these, but I just wanted to give you an idea of how the church has handled this over the last few thousand years and how tradition has infected the way we see things and what we think of. If you've, if you've been a part of the church, like I said, for the last decade or so, you've probably noticed a massive shift in the stance on alcohol. When I grew up, I had to wear khakis at church, and ain't nobody drinking alcohol, like even a beer or, or especially, especially like hard alcohol, right? Uh, and, and that's kind of how a lot of churches grew up. And nowadays, it's, it's a lot different. People drink craft beer. People like drink alcohol. And it's, it's very normal, right, in churches and staff, all this type of stuff. But we, we have had a long 2,000-year journey of it constantly flip-flopping. And I want to just give you this because I, I want you to understand the reality of tradition in our lives. And some of you have actually experienced, it's not maybe with alcohol specifically, but with different things in the church where you grew up with it, and then you became a fully functioning thinking adult, and you're like, why do we do this? Or why are we not allowed to do that, right? Why am I allowed to say this word but not that word, right? Anybody, anybody hear me there? Anybody have choice words they like to say? Yes. And it's like, why? And then, and then you start to like, question the integrity of the people who made those rules. And you're like, why did they make that rule? That's so ridiculous. And at the heart of this, we're going to see the exact same thing, is that we have, we have followed, been followed traditions, and they are, they are inundated in our lives. And a lot of us are getting to the point, I'd say, over the last decade or so, we start to ask questions like, why is this even here? And sometimes it's good, and we keep it. And sometimes it's like, this is ridiculous. I grew up this way, but I, I want to really figure out what is the heart of this, and what does that mean in light of my life? So Alcohol for the last 2,000 years has been just astonishing how much it's, it's been um, totally cool and fine and then even ab- uh, abolished at certain points. So in the Bible times, 20 B.C. to 180, I'm going to go quick. So 
just to give you a survey. Wine was wine talked about in the Bible. It's talked about being a gift from God for the source of merriment. However, there's three times as many verses about drunkenness and being a sin and being something you have to be careful about. And we see Noah in the Bible falls prey to that. And so in the Old Testament, it was often used in celebration. The New Testament, when Jesus comes on the scene, his first miracle is to turn water into wine at a wedding. Now, weddings back then weren't like today. You didn't blow all your money in four hours. You blew all your money in like a week. (laughs) So they'd hang out and party until they ran out of money and wine. And Jesus prolongs this wedding by making gallons and gallons of more wine out of water. We know that his wine wasn't just new wine. It was vintage-aged wine. It was like they say that three- or four-year wine would be like the best wine. Jesus, the, the guy tasted it, and he's like, this is phenomenal wine. So he made phenomenal wine. We also know that wine is in partaking of communion or the Last Supper or the breading cup. We, uh, if you're wondering, that's juice, just grape juice. But some churches, Catholic Church still uses wine. Some churches will give you both options, right, today. But back then, it was strictly wine, and that was normal. And I know some people think, well, like, wine was different back then. It was very diluted. And it's not necessarily true. Uh, they would add spices and flavor to it because it wasn't very good, but they would rarely dilute it unless they were just trying your pour and you were trying to make it last longer. But um, we see Paul even yelling at people drinking too much wine in 1 Corinthians. Uh, the richer people would, would, would come home from work early. The poor people would have to work the whole day, and they'd all meet together for the, the Lord's Supper, for dinner, for fellowship, and all the rich people were already drunk because they were drinking all the communion wine and drinking too much, and Paul's like, you need to wait. Stop doing that. It's not okay. So we see like wine in this kind of tense, it's, it's for excitement, merriment, but it also can be abused pretty easily, and a lot of you have known that if you're in recovery, you know that wine, can, well, alcohol in general is capable of being abused in terrible ways. Um, but the first century typical Roman, uh, Megan Broch, she's a scholar, she wrote an article about this in 1984, uh, the typical Roman citizen drank an estimated liter of wine per day. That's a lot, it's like a bottle and a third of wine per day. Um, that would, not only would that cost a lot of money, but just, wow, it's a lot of wine. So, I mean, it was like their water, basically. Like, every meal, it's like our sparkling water now. You know how everybody has that now? That's basically what that was back then. The early church, which is 100 to 500 AD, basically had the general consensus that wine was fine and they used it for communion and common life. But, but some people did believe in full abstinence of it, to not use it, it's not worth it, or it's not okay. And then the Middle Ages, or Middle Ages, 500 to 1580, monks actually became the primary distillers of beer and wine. If you don't know, there's breweries still linked today from monastery monks brewing beer. And they actually got allotment of some, some were allotted five liters of beer per day. Uh, and they were even allowed to drink beer during fasts. They believed that it was bread and water, so therefore those are ingredients that are good. And yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, you can tell they didn't, they weren't very educated back then. Um, Catholic missionaries would even bring vines to wherever they were going to mission, like mission to evangelize so they could make their own communion wine. So, but they still got in arguments of whether it was okay or not. And we're talking primarily wine and beer at this point. Then the Reformation hits, which is 1500 to 1800 AD. Martin Luther, John Calvin, leaders of the Anglican Church, even the Puritans pretty much all agreed that alcohol is a gift, drunkenness is a sin, and it, it can be partaken of anyone. Uh, in fact, John Calvin, who is a pretty famous church father, um, is... Uh, is his salary included seven barrels of wine, his yearly salary, which is, which is crazy. The pilgrims, who we know left for religious freedom, right? They, uh, in the 1600s, when they settled in America, their ships had 7,500 gallons of alcohol, which is four liters per, per person per day on, on the, the voyage. And then once they got here, they immediately started brewing. It was only until the late 1700s that there started to become the, major, the minority of uh, abstaining and moderation, all that uh, started to shift in John Wesley's era, which is the Methodism move-in, 
Wesleyan, if, you, if you've heard of those denominations, who are pretty strict on alcohol still. Um, John Wesley was like a proponent of just abstaining from it. It's not necessary for the holy life, sober life, sober and alert. There's no need to ever drink and, and kind of abolish it. Now, in that time, distilled spirits started to come about. And those were different, right? Easier to get drunk. And so they would use those for medicine, but then it started to build this culture of not just drinking beer and wine, but spirits. And so then different churches and denominations and fellowships took different stances on each of those, some together, some differently. Uh, and so they're more arguing more differences. And then in the 1800s through the 1930s, we have the temperance movement, which, believe it or not, a bunch of Christian women got together and were like, alcohol is terrible. It's ruining society. It's causing generational sin and, and tearing apart families. And so in 1919, in America, so about 100 years ago, they passed the 18th Amendment um, in, our, in our government to abolish alcohol, to prohibit alcohol in our country. And which is just like crazy when you think about it. Only 100 years ago, alcohol was completely legal. Obviously, it didn't stop people from drinking. It's where speakeasies came to be. Um, and then 14 years later, 1933, they passed the 21st Amendment Amendment. I'm calling it that because it amended an amendment, basically, which is so funny. That like three amendments later, let's get rid of that one. And they passed 21st, making it legal again. Leading up to the last most recent thing, other than here and now, was the 60s and 70s, which was basically the Jesus movement, people coming to faith in radical ways, revivals occurring, people are falling in love with Jesus, and they're just throwing away everything else. They're like, I don't need alcohol, I don't need rock and roll, I don't need sex, I don't need any of this. I'm just casting away my idols because my heart fully wants Jesus, and I don't want anything getting in the way. And then that led to where we are now, um, where I would say 10 years ago, where alcohol was pretty much prohibited in, in general by the church. And we grew up, a lot of us, in the last, you know, if you're 20, 30, even 40, you grew up in an era where church for you was a lot of rules like that. I'm using alcohol specifically, but rules like that you had to follow, and you followed them, but their heart for creating those rules was there when they started them, but we did not receive the heart of the matter. We received the rules and the legality, right, and the legalism, and then people started to get frustrated at that, and so people would jump to the other conclusion. We don't need to do any of this, right? Or some of us were like, well, let's discern through. Why is this here? Is it good for us? Is it good for me? Is it good for our community? And that is what this passage is all about. When we get into Matthew 15 here, it's all about tradition being restrictive in our lives. And at the end of the day, Jesus points to not the external tradition, the rules of legalism, but the heart of the matter. It's all about the heart. And we're going to see that in Matthew 15, if you're there. In the first verse, the Pharisees and the experts in the law came from Jerusalem to Jesus. If we remember from last week, he traveled across the Sea of Galilee. He's up in Genesis, and they travel the whole way up there to confront him. Like, these guys are like, we're leaving Jerusalem to go. This guy has caused too much of a problem. And they're basically just, like, standing there, probably, like, watching everything he's doing, waiting just to, like, poke at him, you know? Um, and sure enough, not long after they're there, they see the disciples eat food and not wash their hands. And they say this in verse 2, Why do your disciples disobey, key phrase here, the tradition of the elders? The elders were rabbis before that would give, their, give oral traditions and laws that they made up that then the future rabbis are to follow. For they don't wash their hands when they eat. Now, we have to remember that hand washing is, nowadays is just sanitary. We don't really hand wash. Like, if you didn't wash your hands, like, I'm not going to like say you can't worship here. Or you, can't, you can walk through the doors. Back then, it was barred you from worship if you were unclean. But in the Old Testament, the only laws around this type of specific ritual regular hand washing was for priests. Because priests had to be completely unblemished because, remember, God would bring his presence down into the temple. Now God's presence is everywhere through the Spirit. But back then, it was only a temple, and you had to be right before God in order to be in his presence or around his presence. So priests had to make sure they do all these things to remain ritually unclean. 
Now, ritually is different than like sanitary because like washing your hands, like I said, for us is more sanitary than it is ritual. But for them, it was a ritual thing of remaining clean. And so what the Pharisees do, and this is what they do historically, this is what the common Jewish person is so sick of, is God creates the laws like this, let's just say they're a fence, and the Pharisees are like, we're going to draw another fence around those laws, so we're extra careful, and we can also be the judges of things, right? We can, we can, we can, we can stare on that fence, and they're making it even harder for your common Jew, and so they add all these laws, and so Jesus says, why do you basically... Um, have the laws of the tradition of the elders, and then he responds, and why do you disobey the commandments of God because of your tradition? So what he's doing is he's contrasting the tradition of the elders and the authority of God, and he's basically saying, hey, you guys are on me about this, which isn't even like based from the Bible, right? And I'm going to poke at you in a way that's very serious. And so what he says here is very confusing. I had to read like several commentaries several times because if you've read this, it's, it's complex, but I'll walk us through it. In verse 3, sorry, verse 4, he said, For God said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever insults his father or mother must be put to death. So this real quick, he's quoting the fifth commandment of the Ten Commandments, if you know the Ten Commandments. Fifth commandment, honor your, your parents. And, and then there's another commandment a few verses later, not in the Ten Commandments, that says basically if you curse or insult your family, you can be put, or your parents, you can be put to death. Now, Everybody's like, wow, that's so severe. And like people weren't, be, they were not being put to death left and right. Like if you were like, go pick up that toy. And you're like, no, like they would discipline you. They wouldn't just kill you, okay? It was not that severe. It was more like you just fully like embarrassing, disowning, and like slandering your family in such a bad way. Like there was a respect there of elders and things like that. So that was well known in this culture. And he's saying why, he says, God says this, right? And we know it's in the Bible. Like this is the biblical truth that, that they're following. And he says, but you say in verse 5, if someone tells his father or mother, whatever help you would have received from me is given to God, he does not need to honor his father. You have nullified the word of God on account of your tradition. Remember, like I said, he's saying your tradition over here versus the laws of God. Now, what's going on here, and this is where it's really confusing, is Jesus is referring to a common Jewish principle called kurban, or kunam, which is basically an oath or a vow that you would take where you would consecrate something and give it to the Lord. That would be yourself for like mission or whatever. Uh, it could be your assets, typically your land. Like that was a lot of like your assets. And you would make this vow and you would give it today before the Jewish, or the religious leaders and they would essentially assume ownership of that because they were the treasury of the temple. They were all closely intertwined, which is a terrible idea. And then when you did that, Let's just use an example. Let's say I own 100 acres and I don't like my parents for whatever reason. Or I'm like gaining wealth. I don't want to share it. In this culture, honoring your mother and father was when they became old, they were tired, or they weren't physically able, or a lot of them were widowed. Um, they, would, they would stay with you. They would stay in your house, or you would have enough land. You could build something for them on your land. And you, would, you would take care of them. It was, that was honoring your father. It was expected at that time. And let's say you didn't like them, or you weren't sure if you trusted them, or you just didn't want to share your assets anymore. You're like, nah. You would korban your land, give it over to God, and then here's the crazy thing. When you korban something, you could still use it, you just didn't own it. It's almost like uh, if you have a tax write-off, like you spent this money on these things, but the government can't tax it, they can't touch it, but it's still kind of like you're still reaping benefits from it, right? And in the same way, they would do that so they could, they could kind of kick their parents out or anybody else from like taking their land or having to live on it or whatever. It was a terrible thing. It was just purely selfish. I don't want to take care of my parents. Either I don't like them, I don't trust them, or I just want to build for myself, and like they're on their own, right? I don't want to help. And Jesus is like, 
This is not in the Bible. This is a tradition of an elders. Korban was a Jewish thing they made up, right? Probably because one Pharisee didn't like his parents and didn't want to give him his land. So he's like, Korban. And they're like, what? They're like, I'm giving it to the Lord, but I still want to use it, right? It doesn't make any sense. But they did it. It was very common. Every Jew knew this. And Jesus is saying two things that they're doing wrong. One is they are literally following an oath that is not in the Bible. And in that, in light of that, they're forsaking a, a, one of the Ten Commandments. That's why he's saying how you, you can't honor your father and mother if you just, you know, if you're corbonning your land. But then on the other hand, what happened later and was known in the rabbinic um, council was that they, they also decided that they could um, revoke the oath if they felt like, oh, they want to honor their father and mother, we'll let them revoke it. And back then, oaths you didn't revoke. Like, they were like, when you made an oath, you did not break it. There were serious punishments. And that's in the Bible. If you make an oath before God and you break it, bad things happen. So then they're, then, they're, then they're doing this, and they're disobeying the Bible again because they're saying, well, you can break oaths. Like, it's fine, right? That's why Jesus is like, hey, when you make an oath, you make an oath. Let your yeses be yes, your no be no's. Far better to do that than just to be like wishy-washy. So there's two ways they're being hypocritical here, both of which have nothing to do with the, the commandments of God. It's just man-made rules. And Jesus is literally calling them out, and, he's, and he, he says the word hypocrite. You guys are being hypocrite. Hypocrite is the English word for the Greek word, which means like one who wears a mask. It was common in theater. They had to play multiple parts. They wear different masks. And he's saying, you guys are wearing masks. You have external appearances in one way, but inwardly, you're just full of pride and selfishness. Your hearts are far from the heart of God. And so they've created these rules and structures and things to, to ultimately, we talked about this last week, to build control, to build safety. They want to they call the shots. They want their own world. And a lot of these religious leaders was in tandem with wealth. Like the things they would do would, inquire, would require wealth. And so it was not just for the sake of being like righteous or, or whatever it would seem in the people's eyes. It was also a money thing as well. And so Jesus says in verse 7, hypocrites. And he says, Isaiah was right about you. In verse 8, the people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines the commandments of man. 800 years before these Pharisees came on the scene, Jesus is like, here you are. Which is just provocative, because in the next verses, we know there's a crowd listening. So he's like confronting these Pharisees, and he calls them hypocrites in front of everybody. And the, the common Jew, who like is under this heavy yoke of law, and it's just like hard and, and, and being unclean, right? It's like, it's a lot of work to not be unclean and to have to deal with cleanliness. They're like, oh wow, like he's calling out those guys. And then Jesus turns to the crowd, and he says, listen and understand. He basically ignores them. He's like, all right, I dealt with you guys. You're hypocrites. And then he turns to the people because he's basically, I'm done with you guys. Let me tell the common Jew what I believe, what is the truth of God's word about, of tradition, defilement, and undefilement. And so he turns to the crowd and he says, listen and understand. What defiles a person is not what goes into the mouth. It is what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. And remember, I talked about this like earlier. Like the cleanliness aspect is, is, is every day of their life. The best way to describe it is like during COVID, remember when like we had to be six feet apart, you had to wear a mask, all, you had to do all these different things. You don't want to touch people. Like people would go to give you like a handshake and you'd be like, you know, or you're going to hug somebody and be like, I hope they don't hate this. You know, like it just, every moment around people closely, you were a little bit on edge, right? If you, I don't know if you remember that, but, and, and after a while, like it, COVID was lasting a long time, like the, all the protocol. And it got to the point where like, we were just like weird being close to one another, right? We just like preferred to be a little bit at a distance, right? And, and it had negative ramifications of that. But 
that was like every day for a Jewish person, was like constantly evaluating through their mind, how do I not become unclean? Because the, the, the way to get unclean was a lot. It was financial, it was time, it was all these processes. And so they're hearing this and they're like, oh my gosh, you know? This is crazy. This is so awesome. Like, imagine if you spent your whole life preparing for a career, and you get the education, and you're about to start a job, and then all of a sudden, like, research comes out, and they're like, yeah, this career is pointless. It's worthless. It doesn't actually do good in society, and we're, we're basically, like, cutting any job that's like that. You'd be like, what do I do now? Like, so the Jews are just shocked. They're probably like, hooray, but they're also like, this is crazy. This is so provocative. And this is why the disciples, uh, they... They say, hey, did you know that when the Pharisees heard this saying, they were offended? <laughs> I love that. Like, no, I didn't. Jesus, no, I didn't know that. I, I called him a hypocrite in front of everyone. And they, I thought they'd just be cool with it. They came the whole way here to judge me, and I called him a hypocrite. So it's just silly. They're like, but they're like, that was serious what you said. Because what he's doing, Jesus is saying to the people, he is just destroying the tradition that they had, they had built for, for a long time, for centuries. And it had been built through rabbi after rabbi, and they would build these rules around God's law, and they were just exploiting people, and it was causing this heavy yoke of almost slavery on these Jewish people. And so they, the, Jesus says, every plant that my heavenly Father does not plant will be uprooted to leave them. They are, and he's talking to the Pharisees, they are blind guides. If, any, if someone is blind, they lead another who is blind, they'll both fall into a pit. And Jesus, Peter, I love this, and he's saying this on behalf of the disciples. It's not just Peter, but he says, explain this parable to us. And Jesus is like, even after all this, are you still so foolish? Because remember, this was so inundated in their life. This was all they knew. And, and Jesus is like, are we sure? Like, that's, like, defilement? Really? Like, it comes out of our heart? And that's why Jesus goes in this long kind of explanation. He says in verse 17, Don't you understand that whatever goes into the mouth enters the stomach and passes out into the sewer? Still true today. But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. And these things defile a person. For out of the heart come evil ideas. And then we have murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. All these are external things. These are the things that defile a person. It is not eating with unwashed hands that defile a person. And Jesus is basically saying, okay, here's the tradition. Let me elevate God's law. And here's what it says. Now what he's doing is really awesome. He's pulling from his first teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, that we get, which is a long time ago. You can listen to that. That's Matthew 5 through 7, and it's this beautiful teaching. A lot of people love it. They're like, this is, he's, he's describing the nature of the people who are in the kingdom, right? Blessed are those who are, who are hungry and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the poor in spirit. All these people, they're able to be in the kingdom. And then he, he basically explains the kingdom rules, the kingdom ethics, and they're ridiculous. They're so hard. He's like, you've heard it said, hey, don't murder. But I actually say to you, don't even have an evil thought or have anger towards someone. Because if you do, like, that is murder in your heart. And then you need, to, you need to be reconciled with your brother or sister. And he says, if you, you know, you might be thinking, I just, if I don't commit the act of adultery, I'm not committing adultery. But even if you lust after someone who isn't your spouse, you are committing adultery. And everybody's just like, oh my gosh, that's so much harder. We can't even barely do these things. And now he's making it, he, is he, a, like, it's almost like he's another Pharisee. He's just creating deeper rules. But the difference between Jesus' rules is he is fulfilling the heart of the law, whereas the Pharisees are not fulfilling the heart of Jesus or God at all. They're fulfilling their own hearts. They're building tradition around their own hearts of ego, of selfishness, of pride, of influence, of greed, right? Because they also control the money as well, weirdly enough. And what Jesus is doing here 
is he's revealing to them, look, the Sermon on the Mount is impossible to live, barring the Holy Spirit. Like, you can't, I don't know about you, I've had an angry thought, right? You've lusted after something, you've coveted, right? Like, in your heart, you've done that. And so we read that, and it does not mean work harder, because that would be like what the Pharisees are doing. Let's work harder, let's create another line around the fence, and that will be extra careful, and then we can also be the gatekeepers of that, right? And what maybe had started with a good heart intent, like we really would care about this, we're going to fast another day because we really want people to, to love Yahweh. And then before you know it, you're fasting three days a week and people like, are, like, can't do it. And your common person has to work a job that's physical and they can't fast three days a week, but the Pharisees are doing it. And then you feel guilty. And in the same way, the Sermon on the Mount can have that danger. Oh my gosh, I just need to do more. I need to be better. The whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus revealing the heart of God that cannot be done on our own, Right? Because at the end, he says, even if your righteousness doesn't surpass that of the Pharisees, you're in trouble. And everybody's like, whoa, the Pharisees are... And and they just gave all these rules that we can't follow. So the point of the Sermon on the Mount is to reveal the heart of God, and it is fulfilled through Jesus. Jesus does not remove the law. He doesn't create new laws. He fulfills it by revealing the true ultimate heart of God. And and, and so the heart is, is, is the main thing centered on this passage. And I think at the Christian heart of the Christian faith, the heart is it. Right? That's what we talk about. But the heart, and what we talk about, we talk about different meanings of heart. I've said this with the word love, how we have one word for love. The Greek have four. But we're just like, nah, one word. Pizza, my wife, same amount of love, right? Same word. But this Greek word, and, and I want to I wanna explain this because it's really important, because when we talk about what is, what is our heart in relationship to following Jesus, which is the core of everything, what is it? Historically, it's just recently just been our feelings, Right? Our heart is our feelings. Well, I just feel a certain way. I want to just respond to that feeling, right? And that's why you have people who are like, well, like, I feel like I need to marry this person because my heart is in it. And like, I feel like God is, you know, I'm just feeling good about it. And so I need to marry this person. Or I need to make this financial decision because I just feel really good about it. I feel really good about buying this $2 million home. It's going to be great, right? And, and we, but where does all of that come from? In, in the Greek word for heart is cardia. Cardia. 95% of the time, it means this. The position of someone's thoughts, which is their mind, their volition, which is their personal will to do something, their emotions, and their conscience. So here, we don't just have feelings. We have four components that make up our heart. Now, what that means is our heart is not just simply our feelings. Our heart is far more than that. It's far more complex. And so when Jesus is saying, like, and he's getting to the heart, out of the heart, he's not saying your your simple feeling will always cause you to respond. But all of that put together, it's like your being, your soul, your deepest affections and desires cause you to choose to do these things. Uh, one, one author I love, James K. Smith, he has a book, and it's, I love the phrase, it's, you are what you love. Meaning, all of that will cause you to do external things. Now, external things in the end of the day are not the full barometer because you can do a lot of external things like the Pharisees and have a heart that's far from God, that's selfish, that's prideful, that's all based on ego, and I think about it like this, like a good example, here, making it tangible because the heart is abstract, it's very like, philosophical, but if I'm standing there and, on a Sunday and, and Nick in the band is playing a song, I'm like, oh, I just hate this song, right? So sick of this song, right? Or I, like, I've heard it too much, or I don't like the lyrics, whatever. I stand there, my feeling is, ugh, right? I don't want to sing this song. So in modern day, what that would mean was, well, Trey, you don't feel it, don't sing. If you're not hard, if you're hard, which is your feelings, your emotions are not positive, you don't partake in it. 
But I know in my mind that any chance I get to worship the Creator with a communion, I should, because my gosh, the Lord has been generous and gracious to me, and I do not deserve any of the love that He's given me. And that is a gospel reminder in my, my brain that I know to be true, regardless of emotion. So I'm going to sing. I'm going to sing, even though I'm not feeling it, and I'm going to sing knowing that at the end of the day, I want to I give this over to the Lord, and I, I trust the Spirit will work through my mind and my heart and all of that to just continue to cultivate love for Him. And so I sing, right? But imagine if every time you feel something, that's what makes your decision. And that's what Jeremiah talks about when he says, the heart is deceitful above all else. You're like, that's pretty sad. Like, I don't know. Sometimes my heart has like a heart for people and compassion and a heart for mercy and a heart for generosity. Why would that be the case? Because when we're talking about heart, what are we specifically talking about? It's all of those things intertwined. And in the modern day, we, we, we chalk it up to, if I don't feel a certain way, my heart's not in it. And what Jesus is saying, no, no, all of those things, your cardia, your entire being, it is, is the reality of what will cause the external. And the Pharisees had none of those. They had, no, they had no positive emotions for God, no love for him in a deep, revering way. They had their, their volition and will was all based on the external things they could do to be impressive. Their conscience, I think at that point, even was probably gone, right? For they knew it was right. They were too caught up in their pride. They were blinded. And lastly, their thoughts became all about how do I elevate influence? How do I create a gate for people so that they can access God through us, right? So all of their heart, all four of those components were all gone. And that is where the external then becomes damaging. If we think about it like that, it's actually really freeing. Because a lot of us wake up some days and we just, we are not feeling it. Like our emotions are like, you know, even sometimes we'll, we'll, we'll meet with directors or small group leaders and be like, hey, how are you doing? It's like, I just feel like my heart's been distant from God. I feel like I'm in this dry season, which, which really stinks, like it does. And I'm in, I've been in dry seasons. I'm sure any of you who love Jesus has been in dry seasons, right? Anyone in the Bible has been in dry seasons. But in light of that, right, what a lot of times we're really saying is, I don't feel God. I'm not encouraged by him. I don't wake up feeling happy, right? My circumstances are affecting my feelings, but I know these things to be true, but they're at odds with my feelings, and I don't know how to just shake myself out of it. And at the end of the day, it's not just shaking yourself out of it. It's all of these things are intertwined. And that's why in Jeremiah, when he talks about the human heart is deceitful above everything else, he's talking about this whole aspect. In fact, if you read uh, Jeremiah 17 in R in the Net Bible, it actually translates the word mind. Because it's like I said, the two are just really inseparable. Mind and heart. And he says, I, the Lord, probe into people's minds and hearts. I examine people's hearts, and I deal with each person according to how he has behaved. I give them what they deserve based on what they have done. And, and in Jeremiah, what's really interesting is, wait, 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 but he's evaluating us based on what we did, but he's examining our heart first. And that's where Jesus is getting your heart is ultimately going to line up with, with your external, what you're doing. And so the two differences between the Pharisees and God, and this is kind of where it pulls it all together, this whole like teaching and kind of the, the main idea is that the, the laws of man, which in this case is Pharisees, but I think we even deal with this today in the church or outside the church, the, the structures that we build, the traditions that we follow are always rooted in the heart of man. And the heart of man is typically prideful. It's typically ego. It's typically how do I build wealth, influence? How do I selfishly engage, right? But the heart of God is the essence of love and truth and beauty. And so the, 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 the first component that makes these two different is, is the heart and what the heart means. The heart of man is deceitful. The heart of God is the essence of this beauty that we see. The second one is that the laws of man are made for control. 
but the laws of God are made, contrary to popular belief, to liberate and to free. So the laws of man are made to control, right? We build a boundary because we want to see a specific result, typically in our own hearts and lives. The laws of God are meant to liberate and free. And the, re the reason why I said contrary to popular belief is because you might think about it and be like, well, wait a second, like some of these rules allowed them to not do things. Like they weren't allowed to eat bacon, Trey. It doesn't sound free to me, you know? Because bacon's awesome. And there's all these rules they had to follow, right? It's, it's ridiculous. But any, I, I use an example of, of um, anybody parenting, like is a good way to think about it. But like if a good parent that's letting their child be free does not mean that that parent just lets them run out on the road and play, right? They have guards and guidelines, and that's actually a really good way we talked about the heart and Jesus is a guide. He has these guides that he creates so that in that, in that we're able to be free and truly liberated. Freedom, full freedom, is, is, it's, it's, a, it's a myth because a toddler being fully free is an incredibly dangerous thing. And, and even when they get to the point where they realize that, like, oh my gosh, the road is dangerous, but I can go there because no one cares. Even they realize that in that full freedom, they actually experience potentially pain, death, suffering, sin. So God's laws are not meant, they're not just like, ah, oh, we should just create this rule, we should just create that rule. They're all centered around revealing the heart of God. And that's why the Old Testament is the Israelites trying to understand the heart of God through his laws, but men sucked the heart and beauty and life out of them for themselves. And then the, the New Testament, Jesus comes on the scene, he has a sermon on the mountain, he says, look, I'm here to fulfill those laws so that you might understand the heart of God, so that your heart might be conformed to the image of mine, right? So that, I think, is at the end of this, this, this passage is, is what it's all about. In Galatians, it says, the law has become our guardian and guide until Christ so that we can be declared righteous by faith. It says, until Christ, Christ fulfilling it and, and ultimately providing a safety for us. So I want to invite Nick up um, as we kind of wrap it up. And I had this story, which I think is just silly, but it's, it's the best way to describe it. It's another kid analogy. But imagine that you had a child, and every single day, they just want to eat like five boxes of nerds every day, which honestly, what child doesn't? But imagine that every day, they just want to eat nerds all day, candy, nothing else for their meals. Now, like we said, we think true freedom in the world would say, we'll let them eat whatever they want, right? Like, they want that. Their, their feelings want that, which is probably the sugar causing their feelings to want it, right? And they want that, so just let them eat it, okay? That's freedom, right? And then, we, we don't, and then we let them do that, and what happens? Honestly, if we're straight up honest, if all your child ate was nerds all day, every day, they would not live very long or have serious health complications, obesity, diabetes, you name it, like serious problems because nerds are not that helpful, healthy of a diet. And so freedom in that actually causes destruction and death and, and, right, and, and bad so in that, we have to understand what is healthy for our child, for our children, for, for them, and what are the guidelines and the boundaries that I want to put up so that they can be fully free in the place that I've created them. And that's what God is doing. The heart is deceitful above all, so the heart doesn't get to make the rules. God makes the rules. And our hearts, as they become more and more like Christ, we understand the laws and the heart of God and what Jesus fulfilled was not to confine us in a way of just just to be unfair, but to, to liberate us in true freedom, to live a life of freedom. And Jesus is reminding that, and that's the heart and the root of this passage. So as we close today, I want to um, give you some time. We always have the bread and cup up there.
which uh, is gluten-free and just juice, if you're wondering. Um, and we encourage anybody to partake in that at any time if you follow Jesus. It's just a reminder that Jesus' heart was what fulfilled the law for us because we couldn't do it on our own. We can't live up to the standard that God calls us to and sin separates us and God and Jesus brings us together. So that is there for you. We also have some reflection questions that I'd love for you just to process through. Uh, and then lastly, we have people in the back who would love to pray for you. Um, I just encourage you, even at number four, who do I need to ask for forgiveness for because of my own hypocrisy or judgment towards them? I'd encourage you to pray through that and make an action step like, I'm going to talk to this person today or I'm going to talk to him later um, and I'm going to seek forgiveness because I have been hypocritical just like the Pharisees. I have judged based on external and not cared about the heart. So I'll give you some time and then we're going to close in one more song. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit Contrast.Church.